that's the foghorn. It must mean it's time for the Cavish Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog, the murk, and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, the world's prosperity of the past 75 years is largely due to the United States Navy's success in keeping the ocean safe for commerce, argues the author of a new book. But he also warns of the dangers the service faces in continuing its dominance and what that could mean for global security. We'll talk with author Greg Easterbrook. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. The U.S. Navy on September 4th declared dead the five missing crew members from a helicopter crash on August 31st aboard the aircraft carrier Abraham Lincoln off the Southern California coast. The MH-60 Sierra helicopter from Helicopter Sea Combat Squadron 8 went over the side while attempting to land aboard the carrier. The Navy has released few details of the accident. And on the east coast of the U.S., the Norwegian frigate Fridtjof Nansen arrived at Norfolk Naval Base in Virginia September 5th to begin training operations with Carrier Strike Group 8 and the USS Harry S. Truman. The Nansen is a lead ship of Norway's four-ship class of Aegis frigates. Truman completed a nearly year-long overhaul in midsummer and is in the early stages of pre-deployment training. The British patrol ships Tamar and Spey left Portsmouth, England September 7th, headed for the Indo-Pacific region, where they will operate for the next five years. The ships will have no permanent base, the Royal Navy said in a press statement, but will range from East Africa to the Western United States, the Bering Sea to New Zealand, and act as the eyes and ears of the Navy and the nation in the region. Staying with the British Royal Navy, the decommissioned Type 23 frigate HMS Monmouth was towed from the Devonport Naval Base on September 10th, apparently bound for a scrapyard. The United Kingdom Integrated Review and Defense Command paper of March 2021 announced that Monmouth and sister ship Montrose would be disposed of as part of the Royal Navy's reinvestment in new Type 26 and Type 31 frigates, although those remain several years away from entering service. The U.S. destroyer Benfold carried out a FONOPS Freedom of Navigation passage in the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea on September 8th, passing within 12 miles of Mischief Reef, where China has created an artificial island base. China claimed its forces expelled the Benfold from what it claims are territorial waters. It was the fourth South China Sea FONOPS carried out this year by U.S. Navy destroyers. And a new U.S. Navy task force was officially established in the Mideast on September 9th to oversee the integration of unmanned systems and artificial intelligence techniques. Part of the U.S. Fifth Fleet, based in Bahrain on the Persian Gulf, the first-of-its-kind Task Force 59 is intended to use existing and developing systems to produce operational concepts not only with U.S. ships, but with the military forces of numerous allied nations in the region. A groundbreaking ceremony was held September 8th at the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard in Kittery, Maine, for an expanded dry dock to work on nuclear-powered attack submarines. The $1.7 billion seven-year project will expand a World War II-era dry dock to be able to hold as many as three Virginia or Los Angeles-class submarines at once. The effort is part of a major focus to rebuild, upgrade, and expand the capabilities of the four Navy-owned shipyards, of which Portsmouth is the smallest. USNI News on September 9th reported the Lyndon B. Johnson, third and last ship of the DDG-1000 Zumwalt class of big stealth destroyers, will be completed at the Huntington Ingalls Shipyard in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and not at the General Dynamics Bath Ironworks Shipyard in Maine, which built the ship. 
The first two ships in the class, Zumwalt and Michael Mansour, completed their combat systems installation at San Diego. But the Navy in early 2020 declared the LBJ would not have a split delivery between combat systems and hull, machinery, and electrical systems. The decision to complete LBJ in Mississippi was apparently taken earlier this year, but has not been publicized. And that's a quick roundup of Naval News this week. So this week, we're going to talk about a new book that's come out about the Navy and naval power and maritime power and the effects on history and the effects on the world today. And uh, somewhat different for this podcast, it's not a book by a navalist or nor a naval historian nor a naval professional. It's by a professional writer uh, named Greg Easterbrook. Now, Greg has written um, quite a number of books. He writes about economics. He writes about climate change, football, American culture. Um, but this is sort of his first foray, I think, into defense. So, Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Glad to be here. All right. So you are this is I think this is something new for you getting into the world of, of defense and especially in particular in the world of naval affairs. So what drove you to do this? Well, I, first I can tell you, Chris, I have written about defense matters before, but in the past, if you look at the Atlantic Monthly of the 1980s, right. you will see I did two cover stories there on defense issues. There you go. But, this, but, but I'm certainly not a navalist. I'm certainly not an expert. And this book, although it has a warship on the cover and the words U.S. Navy, is only about a third about the Navy. Another third is about the benefits of global trade, and another third is about ocean governance. And I try to show in the Blue Age how all three of these things are related to each other. So what I, I mean, did you did you learn much in this book, or did, were you proving out your theses, or how did this work for you? Well, I'll, I'll tell you how the project started. My most recent, I wrote, I write both nonfiction and literary fiction, right. and my most recent nonfiction book, 2018, titled "It's Better Than It Looks," argued that the condition of the country and the world is better than most people understand, and that there are more positive trends than negative trends. So that book had a chapter on the decline of war, incidents of war, intensity of war, casualties of war are all in our lifetimes in a, in a long-term phase of decline. And, that, and, and in turn, that chapter had about one page saying that there's been hardly any naval fighting in my lifetime. I won't shock you by telling you how old I am, but my lifetime's a pretty good indicator. There's been almost no fighting at sea. This has made possible the phenomenal increase in international trade that makes almost everyone better off, including almost everyone in the Ohio Valley, and has had dramatic positive effect on reducing poverty in Asia. So this is one page in, in my previous book. My editor, Public Affairs book, circled that page and said, Greg, this is your next book. So that's, that's the origin of the project, The Blue Age. So the name of the book, The Blue Age, How the U.S. Navy Created Global Prosperity and Why We're in Danger of Losing It. So when you look around the, the, the world escape today, what drives you to that, to that last part there? Why are we in danger of losing it? Well, first I argue that for the United States Navy to be not only strong, but to be stronger than all the other navies in the world combined, which I think is true today, although obviously the Chinese are gaining on us. But for the United States, United States Navy, that's hard to say, to control the oceans of the world has been good for the human family. It's brought peace to the seas. Three quarters of the world's surface is water. 
that that whole area now has been peaceful in our lifetime. It's not just some lucky coincidence. It's because the United States Navy controls the seas and they are a guardian force, not a warrior force. And that's very good. And it's very good for global trade, which despite what Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders both say, global trade is good for almost everyone. We live better as a result. Nations relate to each other better as a result. For the United States Navy to have hegemony has turned out to be really good for, for the world. And the, the worry that, we'll, that, that in the subtitle that this, the Blue Age may end, the worry is that there'll be some kind of fighting it on the seas with China, probably in the South China Sea, but maybe in some other place, or simply that a new naval arms race will begin, and it kind of looks like one is beginning, and that that will interfere with global trade, and we'll all be really sorry if that happens. So that's, uh, the book leaves the reader with some questions about how long the Blue Age will last, and, and, and some proposals that, for ocean governance that I think would help keep the current mainly good situation in place. For years as a Navy communicator, many folks in the Navy and around the Navy have, have the same uh, or share the same beliefs and same, same thesis that, that you do, um, but have struggled to convince um, or reach um, an otherwise busy American public that, that they need to make the uh, investments in, in time and money in order to keep um, you, you know, this uh, status quo going. And in fact, that as, you, as China rises, there's even more fear and more concern that we won't be able to reach that public um, to both be able to compete with the Chinese and then you know, keep the Blue Age going. H how do you think your writing, your work can better reach folks? And uh, do you think they're reachable at, at all? Um, you, know, you mentioned that you asked them questions. H how do we begin to effectively have this conversation? Well, as you, as you know, Christy, American political system in general, this is not not just this year for a long time, has responded mainly to emergencies. When something is wrong, we get all excited and deal with it. And Americans fortunately are very good at dealing with emergencies. It's one reason that we have such a great country. But if you focus on emergencies, when things are okay, you tend to miss it. And things with the Navy for the en entire post-war era, pretty much okay. There's no fighting at sea, our ships aren't sinking. Nobody's really challenging us, even the Chinese today. Maybe they will at some point in the future. They wouldn't dare challenge us today. So things are okay. So how you raise the public awareness of an issue where things are basically okay is a classic challenge in, in a free country um, because you're competing with all the areas where things are not okay. And you're also competing with exaggerated claims. You, the, the, the mainstream media, as you know, Chris, in, in, especially in the last 20 years, has concerned itself mainly with exaggerated claims, extreme claims of doom, say on one side, extreme denial of problems on the other side. To take something in the middle, we've lost our ability to talk about the middle of political issues. And to say, well, here's, here's something, the Navy is basically pretty good, we're all better off, you know, international trade makes us better off and more prosperous and it's reducing poverty in Asia, which I find practically nobody in the United States knows. All these things are good, but we have these problems. We've got to be able to compete with China. We, need to, we, we haven't invested enough in modernization of the fleet. That's a message that doesn't sell in the current media. If you want to be on CBS News or ABC News, you have to wave your hands in the air and say, the world is ending, or you have to say, it's all lies. That's what the big networks are going to dignify. And as, 
as an author, the best that I can do is write a good book about it. And I would like to think that I just wrote a good book about it. Yeah, I, I think you did write a good book about it. And, and I mean, I'm, um, I'm particularly taken, um, I, I'm reading on the website and I saw it in the book that uh, Admiral Stavridis was one of the folks that provided some comment. Um, you, you know, his most recent book is kind of a break from the norm. Um, in that he writes historical fiction. And at first there were a number of people um, very close to the Naval Service, maybe that panned that idea or questioned, you know, why is such a big thinker like Jim Savridis writing historical fiction? But, you know, when you look at that work, when you look at your work that, that doesn't um, go looking for problems that maybe don't exist uh, in a very tactical sense with regards to the Navy, um, th there's a lot of benefit in uh, reaching that public that, that you and I just talked about. Whereas, you know, those of us that kind of drink from the same bathwater, the same navalist bathwater, sometimes miss, right? We want to point out all the problems with the Navy and all the ways that we need to fix it. But your thesis is that we're, we're actually doing pretty well um, and that we need to keep it that way. Yeah, you are actually doing pretty well. And by you, I mean navalism. Uh, and the big, and the most important thing that a navalist can accomplish right now is to keep things more or less the way they are. Obviously, the world always changes. It, things won't be identical to the way they are now. But if the U.S. Navy could keep approximately its same force structure and approximately the same relationship to freedom of navigation and sea lanes and all the other things that the Navy works on, uh, then, then the Blue Age would continue and we'd all be better off. And if you've read, Admiral Stavridis is one of the great Renaissance men of our lifetime. Four-star Admiral is also a PhD in political science and an expert on the law of the sea treaty and a, and a former academic dean at Tufts University, which is a pretty tough school to get into. Uh, his book, uh, 2034, as you know, is a speculation of how all of this could come crashing down in flames. So let's let's hope that he's totally wrong about that. Uh, last question I have, and then I'll throw you uh, throw you back to Chris. Um, as he mentioned in the opening, um, and as you discussed, you know, really only a third of it is really you know meat and potatoes naval issues, but that you get into the larger maritime and at sea challenges that both the United States and the world faces. Um, can you talk a little bit about how important it is to think both for the navalist community, but really for policymakers and the American people writ large to kind of think of all three of these things and not just one of the three if the Blue Age is to continue? Well, Chris, that was the basic goal of the Blue Age. We, we think of the, the Navy's the military. Military fights wars, they're often one quarter fighting wars. Global trade is economics. Economics is done by big companies that want profits. They're often in another corner. And then there are all these environmental questions and what to do with as the Arctic Ocean becomes navigable. And, and that's for government experts and they're often in another corner. And my view is that they're all part of the same thing. The reason global trade has been able to increase, which again, despite what Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders jointly say, has been good for almost everybody, uh, higher living standards, longer lifetime, less inflation, et cetera. The reason that, that global trade has happened is because the US Navy makes the oceans safe. And the reason we've, th this is now the year 2021, we've never had a, uni a, a European run war in our entire hemisphere in the last 200 years since the Navy became powerful because the Navy keeps war out of our hemisphere. 
that's such a great example of, we, we don't notice it because it didn't happen. But if you look at all the wars that have happened, all the terrible destruction of the Eastern hemisphere, matched to almost nothing in the Western hemisphere, that's not some crazy coincidence. The reason is, is that the Navy has prevented the problems of the rest of the world from coming here. And by here, I mean our entire hemisphere. So those things have a lot to do with economic success. Of course, we think of ourselves first because we're Americans, but for the world as a whole and for the reduction of poverty and in especially China, but also in India and parts of the Pacific Rim. And then we have this third question, ocean governance. The oceans are largely ungoverned. They're three quarters of the Earth's surface. That's got to change. And is it going to change in a smart way or is it going to change in a panicky, stupid way? And the book proposes smart ways that we could govern the ocean and share maritime power and keep the current good situation and also protect the ocean environment, which is a critical issue. So you've had these historically, you've had these eras, these almost epochs in, in human life where you had Pax Britannica starting after 1805 and the Battle of Trafalgar, where the Royal Navy was sort of the world's policeman and the arbiter of order for a century and a half, essentially, till the world end of World War II. And then you have the rise of Pax Americana, which is where we've all been living since 1945. Um, the Chinese are ever strident every single day and very much now about it's time for China to be the world's guarantor of peace and safety and security and guaranteeing the maritime commons. So that, that is an argument that plays out virtually every single day. Um, and they're being very more aggressive all the time in all the areas around the South China Sea, which you rightly point out is an exceptionally complicated area. What do you, what do you, what's your outlook after having looked at all this and thought about it for a while about what happens with PAX, PAX with the Sino PAX, PAX Sino, PAX China, whatever term it might, might emerge. Uh, if we withdraw, for example, if we just, we just say, that's it, we're going to have a 150 ship Navy and we're just going to pull back from everywhere. What happens? What do you see then? If that happened, Chris, that would be bad. I don't, I don't think and that's seriously proposed by anybody that we just pull back from the world, the more, the, the, the greater, since I like the strength and size of the Navy and I like the Navy imposing peace on, on the world's oceans, the, the greater fear is that Americans and, 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 and the budgeters in Congress just gradually say, look, everything's fine at sea. What do we need these super carriers for? Let's bring everything home. And if, if there's a fight somewhere, then we'll send the fleet out then. And that would, you know, maybe things would be okay. The current administration of China is a pretty despicable bunch, but it's possible that there'll be a future administration that's mainly loves the world, just like we mainly love the world. Um, but I, I wouldn't be happy if the Navy pulled back from its, I know you have a navalist audience from its forward deployed way of thinking. Uh, it's, that, that's not perfect, it's expensive. Sometimes it's led to mistakes, but having the US Navy forward deployed has made the seas peaceful for 75 years. And you got to go all the way back to the Phoenicians to find a period that long when there wasn't any major fighting at sea. So in that respect, that aspect of navalism, Chris, I would say if it's not broke, don't fix it. So people don't really get the sense of China as a threat to, to global commerce, to maritime commerce. Uh, people talk about you know what they make and what they build and what we buy from them and this sort of thing. 
but they really don't get the idea of trade and controlling the seas. Did you find that out? Did you, is that, would you agree with that? Is that, is that part of why you're writing the book? Well, the middle third of the book is about the effect of seaborne trade on the world. Mm -hmm. And I argue that it's, that, that effect is mainly good. Of course, it's not perfect. There it has flaws, but almost everybody in the world, including Americans in the Ohio Valley and, and British who live in the Midlands area of England, those are the two classes of people who complain the most about globalization. Almost all of them are better off because of globalized trade. Uh, and uh, I've said it twice, I'm gonna say this a thousand times in, in talking about this book. And the great thing that we don't see is the decline of poverty in Asia, uh, which was not only a moral wrong, but was destabilizing to the world. And with each passing day, there are more middle-class Chinese whose personal stake is in normalcy for their country. And I think that will, that the more normal China becomes, the better it will be for everybody. Uh, uh, but we don't appreciate globalized trade in the United States. This is part of what's wrong with our media and the doomsday versus denial uh, thing that our media does is that we hear global trade, of course, has flaws. We hear a great deal about the flaws. We heard a lot from Donald Trump in 16 and a lot from Bernie Sanders in 2020 but we don't hear about the benefits. And we're getting a little bit of sense of the benefits right now with the global supply chain somewhat off because of COVID. And suddenly there aren't an unlimited number of cheap products and no inflation. And why do you think that is? That's, did that come down from the sky? It's caused by disruption in ocean supply chains. So the solution to it is to stabilize those supply chains. So I did uh, chortle chuckle. You had a passage in there about your younger days at the Atlantic, um, talking about the esoteric things that you all would write about. And at least we're not writing about the law of the sea. And now you're writing about the law of the sea. Um, yes. And that was something like, oh, you know, you're talking about something approaching now 40 years ago um, from that recollection of yours. Uh, we still haven't ratified the law of the sea. Um, it's still something that is that, that remains an issue today. Um, what's your sense of that? Well, I quote John Richardson the, the for, from an interview with, with the, the former CNO as saying, the United States has not ratified the law of the sea, but we observe it. China has ratified the law of the sea and they defy it. So which is better? And, and if that's your choice, well, obviously it's better. What America's doing is better, but I, I, I truly don't get why we don't ratify the law of the sea. The law of the sea mainly accepts the American position on all major issues. Uh, we don't benefit in any way from refusing to ratify it. And I think we need to go on to a new and improved standard of ocean governance. And in the Blue Age, I spent a chapter proposing what that standard would be. But for us not to ratify law, I'll tell you, Chris, you probably had this experience yourself. Every senior naval officer you talk to wants it ratified. Every senior global trade person practically every academic, uh, they all want it ratified. And I, and I just don't get why we don't ratify it. It's um, an, a right-wing position that says they don't want smaller countries to have the, a vote and tell the U.S. I guess that's it. That's, guess it. that's it, yeah. Anyway, but I but certainly would agree with you and uh, the people you've, you've been talking to. We have been talking to Greg Easterbrook. The book is The Blue Age, How the U.S. Navy Created Global Prosperity and Why We're in Danger of Losing It. It has just been published. 
It's uh, available on Amazon at fine bookstores everywhere. And it's a great read and highly recommended from us. So Greg, thank you so much for being on the show today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Chris. Now hear this. Now hear this. Okay. Well, everyone listening is well aware it's been 20 years since the events of September 11th, 2001. I have just a couple quick thoughts. That morning, I was at work at Navy Times, where I was an editor. Reporter Mark Ferrum was right next door to the Pentagon at the Navy Annex, headquarters of Navy Personnel Command, waiting in his car before going in for an interview. My phone rang. It was Mark. There's been an explosion at the Pentagon, he said. I said, do you have a camera? Uh, no. Wait, I've got the digital in the trunk. Grab it and run, I said. Mark said, yeah. He hung up and he ran off. It was perhaps the most succinct phone conversation of my entire career in journalism. Now, understand Mark is probably the finest natural photographer I've ever known. He was also a journalist first class in the Navy Reserve. He grabbed his camera, ran up a short hill, crossed a highway, reached the Pentagon just as people were beginning to come out of the burning building. Survivors were dazed and confused and trying to gather themselves amidst the destruction of American Flight 77 hitting the building. Mark captured it all, and with our blessing, shared all his photography with the Navy and the Department of Defense. Many of the most striking photos from the Pentagon put up by DOD were taken by JO-1 Mark Farum. Later on that day, I went outside for a smoke break. The normally busy skies around Washington were clear of commercial aircraft. No one was sure what was going on, what would be coming next. Then the sound of aircraft, but not of airliners. I looked up and saw two Air Force F-16 fighters overhead, circling the Capitol. Well, all right, I thought. We've got a cap, a combat air patrol. It may sound corny, but I was truly comforted by the sight of those fighters up there protecting us. And that's what everyone in the military does. They protect us. There are truly bad people out in the world who wish us harm, and those in uniform and all who support them work every minute to keep those bad people at bay. I never forget that. And that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Baga Moradian for his support, as well as to the Fincantieri Marine Group and Huntington Eagles Industries for their continued support of the defense and aerospace effort. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye.